our vision statement. By the grace of God, we are a, a diverse family, renewed and reconciled together with God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. And I think you'll see, and I, and I hope, that the underpinnings of this vision statement is found in Scripture, and in particular, um, some of what we're going to read today. So please stand with me. I'm going to read the word. Again, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Several years ago, I was having dinner with some friends, probably a dozen or so people, and there was laughter, and there was chatter, and there was food, and, and I remember feeling like I was alone. I remember feeling like I was alone, and, and, and up until that point, I was, I was in my 20s, and, and I had had these group of friends who were all single, and one by one, they started getting picked off. And they became couples. And I remember there's this one particular dinner where everyone was a couple except for me and this one other, this one other young woman. And, and it's almost like at the same point we looked at each other. We're like, do you realize what's happening? And, and I thought to myself, and we weren't interested in each other, but, but I was just thinking, I, I don't belong anymore. Like, I need a different set of criteria. I need another person now to join this couples club I, I, all of a sudden, I didn't feel like I belonged. Have you ever been in a place where you felt like you didn't belong? One of life's greatest felt needs is feeling like you belong. We use many different words and concepts to describe this. We call it acceptance. We call it inclusion. We call it community. We call it family. At the end of the day, regardless of what you call it, uh, we just want to be loved. Do you matter to someone? Most of us don't need to matter to hundreds of people to feel like you belong. But do we matter to anyone? If, if we were all of a sudden... Uh, raptured up from this earth, would anyone miss us if we were gone? This morning, I want to talk to you about the idea of belonging. I want to look at what God says about belonging. And the question is, what, what makes you belong? What, what makes you accepted? In order to answer that question, we need to first understand that we have a problem. We have a problem of belonging. What do I mean? This is my first point. We have a problem of belonging. Let me read verses 11 through 12 again. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says to remember, he's, he's talking about in this context, Gentiles and the Jews, 
And the Gentiles, this is who he's talking to right now, they are uh, what he calls the uncircumcised. They were called that by the circumcised. Now that's a, that's a label that they're using. It wasn't a neutral label. To, to call someone uncircumcised wasn't like to say, oh, those are the blue-eyed people and there's the uncircumcised people. And It wasn't a neutral thing. It was, it was pejorative. It was um, something that was used to exclude to call someone uncircumcised was something that cut far deeper. From a Jew's perspective, to call someone uncircumcised was a term of exclusion. It meant that you were an outsider or a foreigner. It meant that you were apart from God. It meant that you did not have or inherit the promises of God. You didn't belong if you were uncircumcised. Has anyone ever labeled you in a way that made you feel like you were excluded? I remember several times in my life I've been called the N-word. It's not often, but every time it happens, it's like, whoa, that, where'd that come from? I remember one time I, we were uh, talking to a homeless guy out on the porch. He was either drinking or sleeping or doing something he shouldn't have been doing on the porch. So I had to go gently remind him that this is not the place for that. And as he's walking off, he yells back at me, the N-word. And I was like, oh, wow, that's still a thing? (laughs) I I also have a a YouTube channel with a couple of cooking videos, and I get the comments on them. They're kind of fun. Most of them are great comments. Some of them are a little puzzling. One comment was, uh, wow, I didn't know N's like omelets. Watermelon chicken, sure, but omelets, lol, LOL. And um, the comments don't bother me too much. It is a reminder of something that I already know, that we have a problem of belonging in this world. There are barriers, there are divisions that exist. It's a real thing. Paul continues to explain that the source of this exclusion, of this alienation, is from something that he calls a wall of hostility. And we see this in verse 14. This wall of hostility. Now, this is a wall that Jesus did tear down, but it's important to know that this wall existed. Now, what is this wall of hostility? The word wall is being used as a metaphor. What, what do walls do? Feel free to say it aloud. They separate. They divide. They separate one space from another space. And that's exactly the intended effect of using the idea of a wall. The wall is about division. Now, now what do you think is causing this division? It's built into the name of the wall. It says it's the wall of hostility. It's the hostility that's creating the division. Not, Not hospitality, Hostility. Now, what is hostility? Let me, let me tell you what hostility is. When I was a teenager, in a violent act of aggression, I busted someone's nose with my elbow. I was playing basketball. And what they teach you to do when you're playing basketball, if you're going up for a rebound, you go up for the ball you're allowed a certain amount of space around you. 
And so what they do, what they teach you to do so that no one takes the ball from you, they teach you to grab the ball, stick your elbows out, and pivot. Swing through, elbows up. I don't know if that's how they still teach you, but that's how they taught me. And so that's exactly what I did. I'm sitting there. This is at Rainier Beach High School in South Seattle. I play for Ingram High School in North Seattle. So we're at Rainier Beach. I grab the ball. I pivot, swing through, knock someone on the nose. Blood's running everywhere. Now at that point, let me remind you, I'm in Rainier Beach. I go to Ingram. All of a sudden, I see the glares from the other players. I hear the crowd murmuring. And the the funniest thing was that the Rainier Beach cheer squad made up a cheer on the spot and said, ooh, he's going to get it. Ooh, he's going to get it. (laughs) That's hostility. (laughs) I Honestly, I was a little scared at that point. Not so much of the game, but not hanging out too long after the game. Hostility is not so much about place or geography. It's, it's about people who are against you. Hostility is an act of the will. Hostility is about people who, who basically say through word or through actions that you're not wanted here, that you don't belong here. This is the hostility that is, that is consists of this wall. This wall of hostility is uh, an act of the will against. Now, in our passage, where does the wall of hostility exist? Where is it? It's in two places. In verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of of hostility. He's talking, he's referencing two peoples. He's talking about the Gentiles and he's talking about the Jews. And so the first place of that wall of hostility is between people. There's a wall of hostility between people. There's a second place that the wall is in. It's between God and it's between people. And because what, what Jesus is doing is not just reconciling two people together, he's reconciling us to God. In other words, there is a wall between us and God. You see in verse uh, 16, and might reconcile us, both Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross. So there is a wall of hostility that we encounter. This is our problem. Our problem with belonging is rooted in these walls of hostility that not only exist between us as people, but exist between us and God. Now, what is the source of the hostility between us and God? What causes this division? You can see this in the inverse of what Jesus came to do in verse 15. Jesus came, he says, Paul writes, to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And in so doing, and so abolishing this law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that's what tears down the wall. So 
the, the division of the wall, part of understanding that is to understand that it's, it's somehow related to the laws and the rules and the ordinances. And, and basically, it's pretty simple. God is saying, uh, to follow me, to, to be with me, there are certain rules. There are certain commandments that you need to follow. And we have a whole list of commandments in the Old Testament. We have probably the most famous set, which is the Ten Commandments. And most people don't disagree that these are good things to do or good things not to do. Basically, we should love people and we shouldn't hurt people. Like most people are in agreement that these are good things. And yet, history has shown us that humans have a problem with loving people and hurting people. Not to say that that's all we do all the time, but if you look at history, that's certainly what characterizes uh, the whole of history, that, that there's wars, that there are, are hatred, that there is people who want to label others and exclude. This is something that we humans struggle with. We don't follow the commands of God. And it boils down to this idea of covenant. All relationships, even relationships between people, our relationship with God, um, they have some at its heart a covenant or an agreement. Some are spoken, some are not spoken, some are weaker, some are stronger, but always there is an agreement that governs a relationship, which simply means that at any point in time, someone can do something to break that agreement. Right? For some people, it might be swinging an elbow at someone's nose and busting it. For another person, it might be stealing from them. In the context of marriage, it might be committing adultery, or in some cases, just walking out. Whatever it is, there are things we can do to break our covenants, to break the relationships, to break the agreements we have in our relationships. And God has a covenant. He has an agreement. That agreement is built into his law. That's what the laws and the commandments and the regulations are. They are a, a definition of what it means to stay in relationship with God. Now, someone might say, well, that, that's mean of God to kick us out of relationship if we break one of his rules. And I would come back and say, do we fault anyone that asks for a divorce if their partner commits adultery on them? Do we fault the person who asks for a divorce if their partner commits adultery? Typically, we don't. If anything, we get mad at the person who committed adultery. They're, the one who committed adultery is the one who broke the covenant. We don't get mad at the person who asked for a divorce. In a sense, that is the penalty or that is the payment for committing adultery, for breaking that covenant. And it's the same thing with us towards God. God is not mean to cut off access to us. When we disobey him, we're, we're the adulterers. We're the ones breaking the covenant. And so God is right to divorce us. God is right to cut off access. God is right to say, you've broken the agreement. And so we are the ones, in essence, that build 
the wall of hostility. We are the ones who create this wall of division. So then what do we do? We struggle to belong with God. We struggle to belong with others because of these walls. How do we reestablish our relationships? How do we belong again? The answer is, we can't. My second point is there's nothing we can do about our problem of belonging. There's nothing we can do. Let's pray. Oh, wait. (laughs) The Berlin Wall was a concrete barrier that physically and ideologically divided Berlin from 1961 to 1989. Some of you remember, some of you don't. It was more than 87 miles long, about 12 feet tall. Now, I have a few questions. There's a picture of the wall. It's not particularly uh, thick. It's not inconceivable that you could climb over it. Was the, was the wall indestructible? No, it was not indestructible. Concrete can be broken down with not too much difficulty if you have the right tools. Were there ways to bypass the wall? There actually were. There were places in the wall that were wide open, and you could walk right through. If you didn't get shot in the process... However, the wall stood for 28 years. Many people died in the process from trying to cross over from one place to the other. Now the question is, what kept the wall up? Was it a superior wall that people couldn't tear down physically? No, it's just a concrete wall. We had the tools to break it down pretty easily. What kept the wall up was the hostility that existed between East Germany and West Germany. That's what kept the wall up. So in order to tear down the walls, you have to deal with the root of the walls, not the physical properties of the walls, the hostility that built the wall in the first place. And as long as the hostility remains, the wall remains. As long as the hostility remains, the wall remains. You see, all that we face in our lives and the hostility that we have in our relationships and our relationship with God remains as long as the hostility remains. And with God, the hostility consists of the laws and regulations and demands that we live up to a certain standard, a standard that God sets. And it's, it's, it's tempting to think that if we can just live up to that standard, if we can just follow the rules that, that maybe we can belong with God on our own strength, on our own effort. Maybe we can earn it. And I think we do this all the time. We, we identify the people that we really want to belong with. For, for me, when I was single, okay, I, 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 now all my friends are couples. Now I have to get a girlfriend so that I can belong with all my couple friends. Or if it was the in crowd in, in, in school, you had to dress a certain way, you had to act a certain way, or, or talk a certain way to fit in with the in crowd. What are the things that we do to try to prove that we belong? 
In light of God, we, we try to be good enough. We identify, the, or we, we, the question we ask is, can we, can, we be, can we be good enough to be called a good person? The sad reality is that one act of disobedience, one act of rejection of God is enough to break the covenant and erect the wall of hostility between us and God. And, and no amount of good works is going to eliminate that hostility. Paul writes, just a little bit before this, he, he describes the, the, um, the utter inability for us to tear down these walls in the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 1 he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That description, dead. Dead people, what do they do? Not very much compared to living people. And, and so the, the picture that, that Paul is setting up, he's, he starts it with this idea that, that we're not in a position of strength. We're not in a position where we have all the tools to just tear down this wall. What he says is, no, you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. What he's saying is, you want to sin. You want to disobey God. In other words, you want to build this wall. You can't tear it down because you don't want to tear it down. That's the point that Paul is making. Our problem is that, not that we can't tear the wall down, is that we don't want to. We don't want to. We like our exclusiveness. We like our selfishness. We like to run our lives the way we quite frankly, want to run it. And even when we give half-hearted attempts to following God, we fall short. And I think no story better illustrates this than um, the story that Jesus tells in several Gospels, but we'll look at um, the one from Mark, uh, chapter 10. I love this story because I think it illustrates the problem better than any way I can think of it. I'll read our passage here. It says, this is uh, uh, Jesus. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
It's interesting the way that Jesus teaches this and the way that he demonstrates what he lacked. Like the, here, here this rich man is coming saying, you know, what must I do? I, I've done all these things. He's, he's coming with his resume, right? Got this, check, check, all the commandments. And, and Jesus sees right through it. He says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Sell all that you have. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And despite the ability of this man apparently to have followed all these commands, the, the one simple thing that Jesus pointed out, it cut to the root of it to the point where it said, I can't go there. Because what Jesus is doing and giving, what, what God is doing in giving us commandments, he's not asking us to follow a set of rules at the end of the day. What he's asking us to do is to give us, give him our lives. That's the point. That's what we struggle to do. We can, we can, we can, we can check some boxes. We're, the Bible doesn't say we can't check some boxes. But at the end of the day, what we struggle to do, what we're incapable of doing, is giving our whole selves to God. And that's what Jesus was demanding of this man. He saw the place that he struggled. Apparently, he didn't struggle in some of those other laws. But when it came to giving his whole self, Jesus realized he was trusting in money. He was trusting in riches. And by himself, he could not give that up. That's our problem. The problem is not we... we we don't want to tear the wall down. At the end of the day, we don't want to, we don't want, we want to belong. We make half-hearted attempts at belonging. Yeah, I'll follow you, but not fully. And that's why it's important to understand we need someone outside of ourselves to tear down the wall. We don't have the ability or even the will and desire to break down the wall at its roots. And we need help outside. And the good news and the third point is that God is the one who's able to tear down the wall. God is able to tear down the wall, and he did tear down the wall. So we can't do it because we don't want to. But there is a second reason we can't do it, even if we really want it to. This is going to be... Um, an interesting point, but I think it's important, and I'll tell you why. It has to do with justice and the wrath of God. Justice and the wrath of God. Now, why am I talking about the wrath of God? Shouldn't we be talking about, this is the third point. We should be on love and mercy and grace. We're still talking, we're talking about God's wrath. We have to talk about God's wrath because otherwise the means the means by which God tears down the wall does not make sense if we don't understand the wrath of God. Okay? Let me, let me show you what I mean. Verse 16. I'm in the wrong chapter or book. All right. Verse 16, chapter 2. I'll start with 15, actually. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Uh, the cross is a picture of death. It's an execution device. 
It'd be like saying today, through the electric chair, or through the, the what do they do, the injection, right? It's, it's through the noose, right? It's, it's, it's a picture of death. It's a picture of execution. So we, I think a lot of, we've, we've taken the cross and we've used it as the symbol for Christianity, which is great, but sometimes we forget the cross was a death instrument. And so in order to understand, like, why does God need to send his son to die, we have to understand the wrath of God. Jesus came, he preached peace. He was able to live up to God's commands, to to follow the rules, to, to, to keep the covenant perfectly with God so that he had full access to God. You might say, well, well, yay for Jesus. He was able to do that. How does that then apply to us? Jesus teaches us. He shows us. He demonstrates. He models for us what real relationship looks like. But what about our fundamental problem? We've already sinned. We've already broken the covenant with God. We've already, as it were, committed adultery against God. How do we undo adultery? That's where this idea of wrath of God comes in. And and the picture of wrath is is not of God foaming at the mouth, spanking people for eternity, and laughing about it. The the picture actually we get is of of him turning away. The the picture of of hopelessness is is the absence of God. That's from, from verses 11 through 12, that the uh, the uncircumcised were seen as those who were alienated from Israel, not just from the people, but from, from Israel who had the hope of God, who had the scriptures. The picture we have of wrath of God is a turning away of God from people. What we most uh, would fear, what we ought to fear is not having God. That's what causes hopelessness. That's the wrath of God. And it's, it, in a sense, it's like a cosmic divorce. God saying, you broke the covenant that I set, and I'm turning my back from you. And we deserve that. That's the wrath of God. That's what we deserve when we break the covenant. But the strange and beautiful thing is that God actually doesn't turn his back on us. Even though he can do that and we deserve it, he doesn't turn his back on us, but he does exact opposite. When we could not keep the covenant, God knew that he himself could keep the covenant. And that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. And yet he sent him to become humans and in effect represent us as in a court where we couldn't meet the demands of of God. God says, I can do it, and I'm going to send Jesus as your representative so that Jesus comes, he lives, he follows God's laws perfectly. He keeps the covenant that we could not keep. But more than that, he dies the death that we deserve to die. That is the reason why God has to destroy the hostility the wall of hostility through the cross. That in the cross, as Jesus is dying, he's dying not for his own sins, he's dying for the sins of the world. That through Jesus, God says, you know what? 
that's enough. His punishment that he took on our behalf meets the wrath of God. That God says, you know the pain that I felt when we committed adultery against God. That pain was placed on Jesus. And Jesus as human, fully human, and fully God experienced that pain on his body and in his spirit. And through that, God says, that's enough. And we can become his if we believe in this message. If we believe in what Jesus did, it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. What God has done to destroy the wall of hostility. And this is the beauty of reconciliation. What we read as we continue in um, verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The result of God's work is that we're now a diverse family that's been renewed and reconciled, not because of something we did, because of the work that God has done. This idea of family is meant to capture what we have been created to be. Our identity is as family, a people that has been knit together based on the work that God has done. And and, and note it's a diverse work. It's not a monocultural work. He's uniting both Jews and Gentiles to be one people. And the picture that we get in Revelation of God's people is beautiful. And we see this in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I hope and pray that that everyone in this room uh, is there on that day and that I can shout with you, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in that statement is the essence of the good news. The good news is that God saves. The good news is that God alone saves. Not us. God tears down the wall, not us. God makes us acceptable to him, not us. He meets all the requirements of the law, not us. Salvation in its entirety belongs to to God. God saves. And before we ever start talking about what we need to do as a church, we need to first understand and believe in what God has done through Jesus. That's that's the engine. That's the heart of who we are as a church. 
the heart is not what we do. The heart is what Jesus has done. And that informs everything about our church. It informs everything about what we strive for, what we hope for, what we long for. It's based on the finished work of Christ. And if we, if we grasp this truth that we've been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus, then we can feel secure about who we are. That, that we know we belong with God and with other people on the basis of what Jesus has done. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We don't need to come up to God with our resume of what we've done for God. And you know what? I was just talking to a brother this morning. Sometimes we have doubts. But our doubts are, 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 are if they're in us, great, let us doubt. But, but let us not doubt what God has done. What he has done is sure. And our, our confidence is not based on what we do because we mess up. Our confidence is based on what Jesus has completed. That's our confidence. That's our hope. That's our acceptance. That's our belonging. We can be free in Christ. By the grace of God, we are a diverse family renewed and reconciled together with God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this time that we can hear your word. And Lord, I I know that you uh, work through your word. It's living and active. Lord, your word goes out and it accomplishes your purpose. Lord, I ask that you would help us to um, grasp your truths ever more deeply. Let it sink into our hearts. Let it sink into our minds. Let us, let us believe. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us in our doubt. Help us to know that our acceptance is based on the work that you've done. I pray that we would meditate on that, that that would transform us, that we would be able to walk with confidence and freedom in the love that you've loved us with. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, At this time also, uh, we do celebrate communion, which is a, a visual